HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides. And I am back. I had a two-week hiatus. Took a little time off. One week I went to the fancy food show. One week I went on vacation. I saw a lot of fancy food. Nothing really that worth reporting, but some cool things. Maybe I'll do a show about it eventually. I am still processing the experience. I'm still digesting, if you will. And then a little vacation, you know, you got to take a break once in a while. So, um, but I'm back. We're back and it's summer. And uh, so what I want to talk about is um, where I'm from. I talk about this a lot, but um, at the time when I was born, when I was born in 1967, do the math, it's okay. We lived in a place called Far Rockaway in Queens, New York. Now, Far Rockaway has now become kind of like a hipster surfing haven, like, the good folks here from Roberta's Pizza even have, like, food stands and a restaurant out there, which, if you had told me that 10 years ago, I would have thought you were insane. But it's kind of come back. But for a long time, Farakaway was a really bad, rough place. Other than the beautiful beach, you didn't really want to go there. But I was born when we lived, we lived out there when I was born. That's what I'm trying to say. And in the late 60s, it was, uh, by then, it was a suburb by the sea it had really turned into like a suburb but it was a suburb that for like a century before that had been a summer resort town yeah it was a resort town which because it was a real easy escape for urban residents of 
New York's hot, dirty, you know, crowded summer streets. People before airplanes and before people had cars, you know, before the rise of the middle class. You could take the subway there. And even before there was a subway, you could take the railroad, the Long Island Railroad, out to Rockaway or a ferry out to Rockaway from the city and escape the city. And so my grandparents and their parents, my great-grandparents, had spent their summers renting rooms in old rambling Victorian mansions, which I suppose at the time of my great-grandparents weren't old rambling Victorian mansions. They were just called houses because my great-grandparents probably were Victorian era, not Victorians themselves. Um, but they would rent out a room or two for the family as a respite from their deepest, darkest Brooklyn and Lower East Side Jewish ghetto neighborhoods where they all lived. Because it was a way for people of very modest means to get their families out of the city and into the sunshine and the sea air away from polio and all sorts of diseases for not very much money. You know, a few dollars would rent your room in a boarding house, including meals for the whole family. Pretty good deal, right? And so during the early part of the 20th century and into the Depression and even into the war years, Rockaway was like a summer resort. It was their summer respite from the city. It was easy. It was affordable. It was local there and up in the Catskills, but mostly there. Now, after the war years, and that would be World War II for you millennial kids, that war, not any of the three wars since, as America's middle class boomed and developed and the suburbs exploded while the inner cities crumbled, that's what happened, it became a place to escape to permanently. Not a summer beach resort, but now an easy suburb within reach of the city by train. Very easy to commute with a very tight-knit Orthodox Jewish community, which is what my grandparents were and were from. And so after the war, after the sort of suburban boom, after their inner city neighborhoods began to get really bad, the whole family moved out there permanently, bought houses, and started having kids. Lots of kids because, you know, religious equals lots of kids. So when I, and so did we, my parents bought a house. They had been living in Brooklyn, but then they bought a house in Rockaway when my sister and I were born, and we lived there. But when I was a year old, we left got out when I was a year old because while the small insular Jewish Orthodox community that I was born into kept growing and was very self-contained, the surrounding neighborhoods started to get really bad. They started to go downhill because the city in all of its infinite wisdom in the 60s and the era of urban slum clearance and improvement, the city started building all this low-income housing all over New York, but on the really fringy parts of it, not within the city itself where there were jobs and employment and social structure, but no, out in the fringy edges so they could basically warehouse poor people, get them out of the cities where they would have nothing to do but turn on themselves and kill each other, which is kind of what happened. So the city built all this low-income housing right on the beach, all these towers. So where these grand blocks and blocks and blocks of Victorians once stood, entire blocks were bulldozed, all those houses torn down, and thousands of poor people were put into these giant filing cabinet, you know, warehouses of ugly towers, miles from any viable employment, and an hour subway ride from the city. And if so, of course, what happened, racial tensions flared between the middle class and the people living in the projects, and crime grew, and the local schools declined as all the middle class white people moved out and over the county line out of New York City proper and into towns in Nassau County, which had higher taxes but better schools and bigger lawns, which is, you know, what people are always looking for. 
So within Far Rockaway proper, the only viable choice for education was to go to a religious Jewish, Jewish yeshiva, where my sister and I would have been taught important things like how to set the table, while my boy cousins would have been import, taught important things like how to read Torah. And my socialist-leaning secular parents were having none of that, much to the dismay of my religious grandparents. So we left. Now, after turning down an opportunity to buy a six-story Victorian-era townhouse in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, for only $10,000, and if you don't know Brooklyn, that house today would be worth about $4 million, but it's okay. I'm not bitter. After turning down that opportunity, we instead decamped for the suburbs of Long Island, eastern Long Island, 65 miles out on Long Island, further out than even where Jack is from. And Jack knows how bad it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even further than there. Far, far, far away from my old world religious insular Rockaway clan, which was the point, and into a very strange mix of old Long Island wasps from colonial era families, people who could trace their roots back to colonial times, mixed in with kind of artsy hippies who had sort of washed up there. And university faculty and grad students who had newly arrived to teach, to basically to fill up the new branch of the state university that had been built there. So it was quite a mix. And along with them, all of them, were the fishermen. Because this was right on Long Island Sound. This is Port Jefferson, Long Island, right on Long Island Sound, which is the body of water between the North Shore of Long Island and the Connecticut coast. That's the Long Island Sound. Okay. People in Connecticut called Long Island Sound, too. And Long Island Sound, historically, has been one of the richest, most fertile fishing grounds in North America. It's part of the whole great fishing coast that stretches from Newfoundland and the Grand Banks all the way down the East Coast. Because the Gulf Stream comes up from the Gulf of Mexico, goes around Florida, and brings nice, warm, fresh, fertile water up into the cold waters of the Atlantic and creates this perfect, perfect environment for fishing. So our town, along with many on the north shore of Long Island, had originally been founded as a whaling station. Well, founded. You know, our town, after the land was stolen from all the Native Americans who populated Long Island for thousands and thousands of years, was started as a whaling station because the whaling industry then ruled the coasts from, like, as I said, Newfoundland all the way down basically to New Jersey. And they whaled and whaled and whaled until there were no whales left, as humans do. And after the demise of whaling, it was still a fishing village and remained a fishing village and still was even when we moved out there in 1968. Because the water of the Sound, although it was already becoming polluted and toxic, still supported enough life that it supported the fishing industry. It didn't stop anyone from fishing. Now, I know the water of the Sound has been cleaned up quite a bit, along with the Hudson River and other New York City area waterways, which is great, from their 1970s-era death throes of toxic wasteland. But the dumping of chemicals and industrial waste directly into the water that was standard practice for the first hundred years of the Industrial Revolution was finally halted somewhat by the last decades of the 20th century. And the cleanup efforts have paid off because there are fish species returning that haven't been seen in years, years. And now they're actually almost safe to eat occasionally. Like there are striped bass in the Hudson River now. The striped bass in the Hudson River were almost extinct but they're back. And now you can eat the striped bass in the Hudson River once a month. Once a month. Which is kind of amazing because 40 years ago, 
you'd never see a striper in the river unless it was floated, bloating, bloating, bloated, floating, bloated, dead and belly up on a raft of trash that was maybe floating on a corpse of a human. So that's something, right? I mean, see, things can get better. A little optimistic note. Things can get better. The striped bass are back in the Hudson. But rapidly escalating pollution of the 1970s or not, Port Jefferson, Long Island back then was still a fishing town. There were other industries too. Grumman, for example, was out there. Aerospace, medical school, hospital, but fishing. Now, it's not really a fishing village anymore. Now it's sort of a cutesy, faux New England, semi-trashy tourist town where kids from the South Shore of Long Island, oh, where Jack's from, come to cruise and wreak havoc. I'm waiting for the comment from Yeah, Jack. come on. Yeah, sorry. Where are you from? Bayshore? Babylon? West Babylon. Oh, sorry. 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 Yeah. But that all really happened in the mid-80s, the faux New England trashy tourist influx. Before that, we used to buy lobsters and clams right at the dock, right off the boats. Right off the boats. And we fished. Oh, my God, did we fish. Porgies and flounders and bluefish and fluke and crab and mussels. Now, sometimes I think we moved out of Far Rockaway. And away from the gaze of my father's mother's eyes, just so we could eat extremely non-kosher foods like clams and lobsters with abandonment, just to stick it to them, and just to spend the hours that would normally be spent observing the Sabbath fishing on our little boat instead of worshiping at synagogue and resting in bored misery. Oh, I mean spiritual contemplation. Now, even my uncle on the other side, my mom's youngest brother, who was just a decade older than me, so he was more like a brother, although kind of a mean brother he lived with us for a long time when he was a teenager and he himself actually later as an adult became a hasidic jew even my uncle who even became more religious and extreme than my dad's side of the family even he worked on a clam boat as a teen raking in the literal and figurative clams raking them in Clams, the trafest of the trafe, the lowliest of the scavenging shellfish as far as kosher law is concerned. Clams aren't kosher. No shellfish is kosher. Not even all fin fish are kosher or is, is or are kosher. Fin fish are kosher. Anything that scavenges on the ocean floor for food is considered unclean. All the crustaceans, all the mollusks, the cephalopods, those guys, although technically... Just to make a point here, clams and scallops and oysters, the mollusks and mussels, they don't scavenge. They filter. They just suck in water all day passively and feed on filtered out plankton. So they're probably the most discerning diners of the shellfish world. And they clean the water in the process. So they're really doing a good deed. They're doing a mitzvah for the ocean, if you will. As they eat. So calling them scavengers and making them unkosher, I think is a little bit unfair to the lowly mollusks. I'm just saying. Anyway, my uncle, as we were saying, he even at one point planned or talked about buying his own clam boat and becoming a clammer himself. I don't know if it's a clammer or a clamman, clamsman himself. He talked about it until he decided to turn instead to the land from the sea and study geology, dry dust versus wet mud, and move to Israel and become a fundamentalist religious extremist. Why? I do not know. Maybe it was all the clams he ate. 
perhaps, tainted with PCBs and dioxin and mercury by that point, they must have caused the type of brain damage that leads to religious fanaticism or something like it. I don't know. I ate them too, though, and I'm no fanatical extremist. I mean, not really. I mean, not about much. Okay, about food, but, you know, that's it. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. In our industrial world, most wines have become brands, but the wines I love are so much more. Fine wine is a civilizing substance that connects us to nature. It cannot be stamped out in the factory. If you're listening to this great show, you probably eat different. I urge you to drink different too. Go deeper. Cane5.com Hey Erica, before you come back, can I ask you a question? Because I was just in, uh, I was just in Long Island on oh. this on the South Shore. You I'm speak sorry. of no, no, that's okay. But it got me thinking. I'm like, if one farm to table, sustainably minded, hip, like craft cocktail restaurant opened, don't you think it would crush? It would do so well. Mm. There's not even one. On Look the, at your like, audience, though. There's got to be people out there that mm. want it, no? Well, think about your family. If you're listening and you're from Long Island and you want this place to exist, email us. <laughs> I'm actually consulting on one in New Jersey uh. that we're hoping will crush. But, you know, suburban, urban, I don't know, Jack. We'll see. Okay. Are we back? And we're back. Welcome back. So let's get real. The cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network. So why all this oceanic reminiscing today? This watery journey down memory lane or memory stream, as if you will. Well, because today I want to talk about fish. Fish. Foodiness. Fish. Foodiness. Fishiness. Really. Fishy foodiness. Foodiness of the worst kind, which I have discussed. We've done fish shows before, but seriously, after 134 episodes, some topics have to be repeated, and there's always more to say about fish. Now, Let's get back to my family, since we're talking about fish. Let's talk about my niece. My niece, Soph, who is now 15 and a half, by the way. And if you're a long-time listener, you remember her because I've mentioned Soph over the years and her food exploits. Now, Soph is spending the week with her friend, Nora, from school, from her old school, down the shore, as they say in New Jersey, the shore, which I really couldn't figure out how to spell Right to get the proper pronunciation. I think it's S H O U G H O U G H. The shore. Because in New Jersey, that's what you say down the shore. As in down the shore, it'll be all right. Remember that song? Anyway, Nora's family have a cat house in Cape May, or I don't know, rented a house, something like that. And they invited Soph to visit for the week. Lucky Soph. See, my sister was right. Send your kid to an expensive private school so they get a superior education, meet the right kind of people, and then they get to spend their vacations with rich friends in nice places. See, they were always right. My sister was the smarter one. So Soph is down the shore, and she texts me the other day, and she says in her cute way, I ate the most delicious thing I've ever eaten last night, Eck, because she calls me Eck. 
Wow, I thought to myself. Wow, this must be really something because Soph ate her first year of solid food eating in Rome. Okay, so the kid's got a palate. And she's traveled, and she's eaten all over the place, and she has me as her aunt, so, you know, what else can I say? And she has the best palate of any kid I've ever met or know. Seriously, not just because she's my niece. So I thought, wow, I wonder what it was. She's down the shore. Maybe someone caught, like, the most gorgeous striped bass or fluke right off the beach, and they grilled it over oak and seaweed on the beach on a nice, smoky, crackling fire. And it was so perfect and juicy and pristine, and they ate it covered with flaky salt and the best olive oil and little tiny sweet briny clams and local corn and tomatoes in some kind of food and wine magazine seaside summer orgy wet dream of a meal. I got really excited about it because that's what I was imagining. As you can see, I'm drooling on the mic. So I texted Soph back. Wow, what was it? And Soph, oh, Soph, you charming little freckle-nosed, well, tall, big kid now. I had such high hopes. She texts me back. It was tilapia stuffed with crab meat and spinach. Okay. Now, I would have cried onto my iPhone if I knew that it wouldn't have killed it because Apple can't seem to come up with a waterproof phone yet, even though, um, hello, everybody else has Samsung. Tilapia. Tilapia, king of the farmed foodiness fish, the free-range chicken nugget of the sea, the soy chip of the ocean, the whole wheat Pop-Tart of the water. Tilapia. The shittiest, nastiest, blandest, crappiest, garbagiest farmed fish on the planet. And yet it's become the default fish on nearly every menu in every seafood supermarket counter. It's everywhere, in everything. And it's mainly farmed in China and Costa Rica. And it's filled with what? Antibiotics, fungicides, fertilizers, pesticides. And it's fed corn and grains and fish meal. It's garbage fish fed garbage. And yet, it's everywhere. It's the boneless, skinless chicken breast of fish. But even worse, do people not see that? Tilapia. Did you eat tilapia growing up? No, it didn't exist. It's farmed. So there's poor Soph. Well, I mean, not really poor Soph. She's whooping it up on Cape May. Am I right? Huh? But there's Soph. Out to dinner at some overpriced Jersey Shore fish house, all done up in decorative nets and glass buoys. The restaurant, not so she wouldn't be caught dead in fish nets. With brass rails and nautical-themed tchotchkes all over the place, sitting down to dinner with Nora's family. And what's on the menu? Oh, let's take a look, shall we? Um, salmon, perhaps? Yeah, farmed salmon from Chile, most likely. Um, the menu will say Atlantic salmon because you can say whatever you want on a menu, but they're not catching salmon off of Cape May. And they probably haven't in a hundred years. I'll tell you that because you catch salmon in rivers. Probably grilled swordfish. Possibly locally caught. There is swordfish on the East Coast, but more likely uh, not. And tuna. Tuna, of course, because wouldn't a, a, it wouldn't be a suburban restaurant without the ubiquitous block of seared rare tuna, probably illegally caught in the Philippines by Chinese fishing boats in defiance of all international restrictions on tuna fishing, flash frozen at sea and sent over to be carved up and sold by Cisco. 
Let's see. What else on the menu looks good? On the today's catch section, maybe? How about some shrimp? Oh, broiled, scampi, fried, farmed, farmed, and farmed. You think they're catching shrimp off the Jersey Shore? Um, I don't think they've caught shrimp off the Jersey Shore since, uh, I don't know when, a long time. Farmed? Yes. In Thailand? Yes. Again, with the antibiotics, the chemicals, the pesticides, the pollution, flash frozen, sold, and shipped. Oh, wait a second. There's a flounder special. Oh, good. Flounder. Flounder is local to the coast. It's local to New Jersey. I caught a flounder off the Jersey Shore once a long time ago. Let's have the flounder. Mmm, flounder filet really quickly sautéed in butter till the edges get really crisp. Mmm, with just a little bit of lemon. Oh, I love good flounder. What? How is it made? Broiled? Ugh, with paprika? Ugh, yuck. What year is this? Where are we? Okay, maybe that's a little harsh. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. The B of the D. But then, what about the tilapia? What about the effing tilapia? And who let my niece eat that? Where was her mother? Oh, yeah, home in Washington. Not with her on the shore. Tilapia is a fish for non-fish people. Actually, tilapia is a fish for non-food people. People who don't like or understand food eat tilapia. It's a non-fish, non-food people food. People who've never been exposed to a perfectly sautéed flounder filet or grilled mackerel or... Steamed clams pulled right out of the ocean. You know, people who grew up in Iowa. And they hate fish for a reason, because they've never eaten really good fish. Or they've never even really eaten fish, let alone good fish. Fresh and pristine and not broiled with margarine and paprika and breadcrumbs until it crumbles into dust under the weight of your fork. And I can't even begin to address the stuffed with crab meat and spinach business. Because A, again, what year is it? And B... Really? Crab meat? More like processed crab sticks with an X on the end because real fresh crab meat is up to about $30 a pound right now. So I'm sure Captain Fred's Seafood Bar and Grill on the Jersey Shore with an E on the end of grill isn't using the real deal. And C, just yuck. Okay, now before you all start with the hate mail telling me I'm an elitist and a food snob, you can all just stop. Because I am. But it's for a good reason. Because it's not about me. It's about the fish. The poor, overfished fish. And our, like, fantasy island way of still insisting that when we're by the sea, we need to eat fish. Or anywhere else we need to eat it. But especially when we're by the sea. Like, oh, programmed, I'm by the ocean. I need to go to a fish house and eat fish. Just because I'm at a shore resort where historically or traditionally you'd get to eat the local catch hauled in off the docks and sold right to the kitchen's back door, like in some Steinbeckian cannery row fantasy collective memory, doesn't mean that, that, that that's how we should still keep on eating. Okay? We don't have to keep doing it just because we did it for the last century. Now, I went cannery row last summer in Monterey. And it was an appalling place. It's now basically an amusement park, like a seedy Disney recreation of Steinbeck's Pier. And there were all these restaurants and all these guys out front hawking, telling people to come in and eat their famous fish chowder. And when I looked at the menus, what did I see? Tilapia. Tilapia. I don't think tilapia ever swam in Monterey Bay and ever will, if I can help it. I'm going to take a quick break. I need to calm down. We'll be right back. I stole a thousand people 
we're back. That was a quick break because we're running out of time. Now, welcome back to Let's Get Really Cooking Show about fighting, preparing, eating food, and heritage radio network with me, Eric Woods. Okay. Now, all those doctors and nutritionists out there telling us to eat more fish all the time, but all we eat are all the wrong kinds of fish all the time. They're not doing us any favors, nor are they doing the oceans any favors. The big overfished fish, the toxic farmed fish, the not even really fish fish in the case of tilapia, that's what they're telling us to eat. Tuna, salmon, don't eat that stuff. Instead of telling us to eat the little shiny oily fish, which are also the good ones, which are now also overfished. So I don't know what we're going to do. Now, we've been through this before together. This isn't our first time at the Foodiness Fishiness Rodeo. We've gone around this ring before. But there are sources for, for information about which fish to eat and which, which fish to avoid. Just do your homework, people. Seafoodchoices.org. That's all you have to do. Just look. Please, for once, don't be like me. Do your homework. So after our text conversation between Soph and I, I felt bad because poor Soph, you know, she didn't know any better and she probably ordered that because it was the only thing on the menu that had any greens involved remember there was spinach spinach in the stuffing and Soph's a really good eater and she probably wanted vegetables other than a crappy iceberg lettuce salad or some coleslaw out of the bag right off the Cisco truck so I let it go and while I did tell her that tilapia was a crap garbage farm fish I didn't comment on the preparation okay so give me a little credit Maybe Soph had a classic orthorexic moment, like I do all the time, where you can't figure out what to eat because you know way too much about your food and everything that's wrong with it, so you can't make any decisions, and you just wind up eating popcorn and yogurt for dinner, which is what often happens to me. Now, I, however, speaking of me, have had an excellent summer of fish so far. No foodiness, fishiness for me, but quite the excellent fishy summer of fish Would you like to hear about it? Yes, of course you would, because you are a captive audience. You could choose to turn this off right now, but why would you? Now, there is a classification of fish, a school, (laughs) if you will, of fish called the scumbroids. The scumbroids. The scumbroids, and I just love that word, are the oily, dark-fleshed fish that have shiny silver skin and are super fast swimmers. Who can name a scumbroid fish? Hands up. Yes, you're correct. Tuna is the most commonly known scombroid. But we don't eat tuna, do we, people? No, we don't eat any tunas anymore. Now, scombroids are also the highest in omega-3s of all the fish, which are the good oils that we get from fish. Omega-3s from fish, not from supplements or orange juice or cookies, where omega-3s have been turning up lately. So the scombroids are those tunas, of course, but also bluefish and mackerel and anchovies and sardines and swordfish. The stuff that the Japanese call beautifully hikarimono, hikarimono, or shiny things. Shiny things. I love that. Now, I only know this. Well, I know this for two reasons. One, because I went to sushi school in California and they taught me that. But two, because the only place I eat sushi anymore is called Taro in Brooklyn. And they have a little set called the hikarimono set which I always order because I love it. Now, I don't eat any tuna, as I've said many times before at all, but I do love my mackerel and my sardines and my anchovies and my herring, and these, conveniently, are the fish that are still plentiful and not too poisoned by mercury and the other bad stuff that winds up in the big scombroids like swordfish and tuna because they're at the top of the food chain and bioaccumulation of mercury. We know about this, right? I don't have to go there? Okay, good. But then there's bluefish, Bluefish. Now, remember in the first segment of the show, 
I mentioned fishing and how much we fished in my youth. We had this little boat, and we would go out on the boat, and we would fish a lot. We caught a lot of different stuff. Flounders, porgies, fluke, weak fish, stripers, all the classic Long Island Sound fish. But the summer's big event, the big deal, was when the blues were running. Now, the kids were never taken out to catch the bluefish because the bluefish ran at night, and they were big and strong and vicious and could probably pull a kid off the boat trying to pull the bluefish into the boat. It was for the men. The men went blue fishing. Now, never mind that my father is barely five foot two and maybe 125 pounds. He went out for the blues with our next door neighbor, Bob the alcoholic, at night to catch the blues. Hopefully, Bob was sober or my father was driving the boat. And in the way that time distorts memory, I swear I remember eating bluefish every single night of every single summer from 1968 to 1982 or until my parents divorced and we switched to Lean Cuisine and Tab. But only temporarily, because when my mom got her emotional shit back together, we started cooking again. Just please let the record show that, that I only ate Lean Cuisine and Tab for a brief, dark period after the bluefish phase. Now, having eaten all that bluefish in my childhood, I actually hadn't eaten bluefish in decades, because after leaving Long Island, I didn't really have access to it. And also, there was a lot of information coming out about the PCB chemical contamination levels in them, PCBs being a chemical that GE and other companies used to cool electrical plants in the first half of the 20th century. And they would dump the PCBs right into the water, into the Sound, into the Hudson River. And the PCBs settled on the bottom of the water in a thick sludge that is impossible to get rid of and got into the fatty tissues of the bottom-feeding fish and worked its way up into the bigger carnivorous fish, like bluefish, which are extremely carnivorous fish. And in all my years of restaurant cooking, we never actually once served bluefish either because it wasn't popular in the 90s when people wanted their grilled swordfish and their salmon and their red snapper and their sea bass. But all those fish stocks declined or became problematic. So chefs more recently have started turning to other lesser known or unpopular species. And suddenly, boom, a few years back, bluefish are back. There was even a New York Times article about it recently. So you know it's a thing now. When the Times talks about it, it's a thing. Now, bluefish's smaller cousin, the mackerel, is, of course, as you know, my favorite fish. And so a few weeks ago, I was at the Union Square Farmer's Market shopping for tomato plants. Not fish, tomato plants. And, of course, all the tomato plants were either too big or too small for my needs. And in my Goldilocks-like annoyance... I said, F the tomato plants. And I wandered over to the Montauk fish sellers to see if they had a mackerel for my grill to make myself feel better because I couldn't find tomato plants. I thought, let's get a mackerel. So I asked the guy, fresh out, no mackerel, I was told. But he had a small bluefish. Did I want that? Bluefish, huh? Well, how small is small? I asked, remembering the three foot long bluefish who were the same size as me when I was eight, and, like, we could have shared clothes, those bluefish and I, if they had been a little fatter. As opposed to now, when I'm barely five feet tall. That would be a pretty big bluefish. About two pounds, I was told. I'll take it, I shouted. Just scale it, gut it, and I'll take it whole. Well, I grilled that hikarimono beauty whole on my grill. I made a little sauce out of goat yogurt, garlic, preserved lemon, and mint, and we picked those bones clean like the scavengers we humans truly are. 
Which leads me to wonder if human flesh is kosher or not, because humans truly are bottom feeder scavengers. I don't know if human flesh is kosher. Probably not. Anyway, it was absolutely perfect. Perfect. And way better than how we had eaten it back home, broiled in the oven, kind of overcooked and dry. My sister, who's listening in, just texted me and said she still can't eat bluefish. And she's 50. This was juicy and perfect with crispy skin, just shy of chard, and that sauce. Oh, OMG. So a few weeks later, in anticipation of guests coming up to Tiny Bungalow. Oh, actually, you know these guests. Kristen Wortman, resident nutrition educator here in the Foodiness Fallout Shelter, and her husband, Brian, were coming up to visit for the weekend. So I wanted more bluefish. But this time the guy said, nope, only mackerel. Two left, whole. I'll take them, I screamed. So two whole mackerels went on the grill and ate big thumbs up all around from the dinner gang. And then last week in Delaware visiting friends. Oh, you kind of know them too. Ben Kaplan, who wrote our theme music, and his wife invited us for a few days to their house. And we wanted to grill fish. Now their local fish store sucks. Sucks. They sell what? Tilapia, already stuffed with crab sticks. And they have Fox News going on a TV in the store all day. So we don't go there. So we went to their local Whole Foods, which to my dismay had the usual suspects. Farmed Branzino, wild salmon for $300 a pound, not much else, some sorry looking mussels. Nothing local, I asked the fish guy. Nope. What's that? I asked him, pointing to a large shiny fish that looked kind of familiar. Oh yeah, a bluefish, the guy said. From where, Delaware? I asked him. Nope, New Jersey, not local. Now, um, we were in northern Delaware. We were three miles from the New Jersey border. So, FYI, that's local. I'll take it! I screamed. Whole, gutted, scaled, etc. You know the rest. That puppy went on the grill. Crispy skin, yogurt sauce, good beer, local corn, flaky sea salt. It tasted like summer. No foodiness, no fishiness, no farmed fishy crappiness. Because if you don't want to eat shit, why? Would you ever eat farmed tilapia, stuffed with crab meat or not? Oh, my God. Look at the time. We got to go. Thanks for listening this week. Thanks to our listeners, you, the listeners, for supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. If you like this show, please spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Tell your fishmonger. Post a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think. Thanks to Jack Inslee today in the control room. Thanks to our sponsor, Kane Vineyards. Thanks to Ben Kaplan for the theme song, and thanks to Dead Stars for the break music. And now, next up, you will hear a clip from Chef Justin Warner on All in the Industry, a show about the hospitality industry hosted by Sherry Bear on Heritage Radio Network. You should listen to all our many and varied Heritage Radio Network shows. There are so many, I can't even remember who's got a show anymore, but they're all very fascinating and interesting. But make sure your number one show is always Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food here on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica White, your host. Follow me on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show. We'll see you soon. Bye. We determined that people want to know why and how of, of food. Not so much just instruction recipes. They, they want to get something and learn something. On episode 61 of All in the Industry, Justin Warner joins host Sherry Bayer to explain the secret principles behind his offbeat culinary creations. And so they said, you know, foie gras donut, for example. I mean, why on earth did you make that? I said, well, I mean, it's a long story, but um, I, I knew it would go together. I mean, it's kind of like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And they're like, wait a minute. 
peanut butter. You're telling me that a foie gras donut is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I said, yeah, I mean, so is pizza. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, of course. Like, it's about fruit and fat and having some canvas to spread it on. I mean, the foie gras is fat. Peanut butter is fat. Cheese is fat. Uh, tomatoes are fruit. Jellies are fruit. PB&J, you know, foie gras donut. It, it's all there. Pizza. So I determined that the law of peanut butter and jelly is something that is true and something that exists and it is real. And if you have uh, fruit, fat, canvas, you'll be fine. Yeah, so like another law is uh, the coffee, cream, and sugar law, which is kind of the idea if you have something bitter, uh, add something creamy, add something sweet. Uh, or you could just say fatty and sweet. So, I mean, if you think about coffee uh, or raw chocolate, you know, cacao is, is bitter as all get out. Um, it's one of the bitterest things that there is. Uh, but the second you add sugar and milk to it, it becomes milk chocolate. So that's kind of, you know, just a simple example. But, you know, if you look at, like, bitter greens, most of the time people add some sort of oily, fatty component and something that's subtly sweet to it. I mean, that's what makes great greens. To hear more from Justin Warner and special guest photographer Daniel Krieger, check out episode 61 of All in the Industry with Sherry Bayer. For more great shows on the hospitality industry, you can listen to all the episodes of All in the Industry available on heritageradionetwork.org. This piece was brought to you by Fairway Market. Like no other market, fairwaymarket.com. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.